This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Danny Hewson. This week, we've got a lot of big government data that both the Bank of England and homeowners aren't exactly thrilled by. And we'll be looking stateside too to see how the inflation battle is faring there. Joining me today is Laura Souter. Hi, Danny. We're going to be covering the impact that that UK data has had on the mortgage market, which is not looking very pretty. And it's not just the weather that's heating up. There's also a lot of M&A activity in UK companies, from a deal for the biggest mobile phone provider in the UK to Mike Ashley's latest purchase. And in our fund manager interview this week, Dan Coatsworth talks to Argonaut Capital's Barry Norris about where investors make mistakes with portfolio diversification. And Laura has a handy trick showing you how you can funnel £36,000 into tax-free savings for your child in less than a year. Yes, stand by for that trick. But as always, we'll start with markets news. I think first we should dive into all of that data that's been released this week and has subsequently caused yet more havoc in bond markets. So first up was that employment and wage figures, Danny. What did they say? Yeah, I mean, everybody was um, keeping a close eye on this because it gives us a real indication of how tight the labour market is and how resilient the UK economy is looking. And it has been incredibly tight. We've seen vacancies through the roof. However, for the last 11 months, vacancy numbers have been tapering off a little bit, but not a huge amount. And that means with the labour market so tight, employers are trying to keep hold of any employees that they've got. And if they are trying to attract new talent, they're having to pay for it. So we had wage figures out. uh, And the key figure um, showed that wages had risen um, by the fastest in uh, 20-odd years, 7.2% over the year they'd gone up by. Now, that excludes COVID times, I have to stress, but it is just a huge amount of cash, though, of course, if you got 7.2% pay rise, and not everybody did, and it alters between private sector and public sector, but even at 7.2%, when you adjust it for inflation, that means you're actually down 1.3%. Now, Pay rises. If you are struggling with the cost of living, it seems like a brilliant idea, right? The problem is when you have a situation where the Bank of England is trying to suck money out of the economy to cool inflation, if you have consumer spending power maintained, if you have a situation where you end up with a wage price spiral, which is something that certainly seems to be happening here in the UK and is something that Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, is really concerned about, then it just means that you know prices go up. So uh, employees go to their boss and say, I need a pay rise. And the boss says, oh my goodness, I want to keep you. So I'm going to give you the pay rise. But then he's looking at his bottom line thinking, hang on a second, I'm now going to find a way to cover that pay rise. So I'll put prices up. So somebody else somewhere looks at the new prices that they're paying and says, oh, I need a pay rise. So they go to their boss and we start all over again. And this is something that the Bank of England has been warning against. It's come 
again for an awful lot of flack, but clearly this is something to be really mindful of. And it immediately had an impact on bond markets. We'd seen them all week going up and up and up. In fact, I posted a chart on social media um, back on Monday showing uh, two-year gilt yields almost at the same peak that they had hit following that disastrous mini-budget in September. Well, following the jobs news, it did cross that peak. And that is just having an absolute knock-on to the mortgage market. It has indeed, and much to homeowners' dismay, mortgage rates have shot up again. And so we're seeing a small element of that panic we saw after that mini budget last year, um, much more muted than it was then. But Santander has become the latest lender to withdraw its products from the market while it reprices them. HSBC has just withdrawn its products for the second time in a week. And this is mortgage lenders basically saying, We need to pull our product line, reprice it, work out what's an accurate pricing for it, and then relaunch them onto market. Um, And estimates vary at the moment, but around one and a half million people are going to be coming off a fixed rate deal onto a much more expensive deal this year. And lots of mortgage brokers out there, I mean, I feel for them, they are scrambling to put in applications for deals before they get withdrawn by by the mortgage lenders. And a friend of the show, David Hollingworth, who's a mortgage broker who's been on many times before, is warning that deals are just being pulled quicker than many brokers can keep up with, and that anyone looking into a fixed rate deal just can't hang around at the moment. So sometimes, you know, applying for a mortgage, you speak to your broker, then you'll wait a few days, then you'll have to round up a load of paperwork and you'll wait a few more days because let's be honest, that's quite a boring task. Um, you have to fill out some application forms that might take a couple of days. You just can't afford to do that at the moment if you're in the process of remortgaging. And if we look at the actual change in rates, so um, Money Facts, the data firm, says that the average two-year fixed rate mortgage deal is now 5.86% and a five-year deal has hit 5.51%. Those are, of course, averages. So people with better loan-to-values, so larger deposits, will be able to access better rates. But those at the 95% mortgage end of the market will be paying more. And I think if you've got your, if you know your mortgage deal is coming up soon, it's a good idea to have a play around with some of the wealth of calculators that are available online to get a kind of idea of, okay, if mortgage rates are at this amount at the moment, how much extra is that going to cost me just so you can be prepared and potentially budget? Because if you think about it, some people will be coming off a deal where they're paying maybe one and a half percent interest and onto a deal where they're paying five or six percent interest. And that is going to be a huge cost, particularly for those who have larger levels of borrowing, so bigger mortgages. Um, One thing that people are opting to do is to go onto a tracker rate in the hope that rates will fall. We had some um, figures out from the Bank of England this week and they showed a big uptick in the number of people choosing to be on a tracker. And for those people, um, it was a concern that they'd be locking in a mortgage rate at what they thought at the time were peak interest rates. So these were figures from the first three months of this year. Now, obviously, for those individuals, they're now looking down the barrel of more interest rate rises from the Bank of England, which is going to cost them more. So it's a real 
tricky conundrum, I think, for homeowners at the moment as to whether to wait it out on a tracker or whether to lock in a fixed rate deal at the moment, even if you're acknowledging that it's like potentially near peak market. And we're actually going to get um, David Hollingworth onto the show in the next couple of weeks when he's got, you know, a moment spare between dealing with all of this <laughs> madness to discuss that fixed rate versus tracker debate um, and the kind of things that homeowners need to think about. But for people wanting more information now, we've just put out a great episode covering all of these aspects on our sister podcast, Money Matters. So if you search for Money Matters or AJ Bell Money Matters, wherever you listen to your podcasts you can find that and also I just want to say a final word on this there's a lot of focus on homeowners but of course this has a big impact on renters as well if their landlord has to remortgage and face higher costs they're going to try and put up rents to cover that and we're already in a really tight rental market where there's a shortness of supply and so we've all lot of those renters have faced higher costs already. And I guess the final, final word is that <laughs> this is having a knock-on impact on the housing market too. So that Bank of England data that was released this week for the first three months of the year showed that mortgage borrowing was already slowing in that period. It was down a quarter on the same period last year. And that's just homeowners reining in their plans to move amid higher rates. Because if you were going to make that stretch to a more expensive property, some people will not do that now or won't be able to afford to do that now mortgage rates are much higher. And you won't be surprised, Laura, that following the jobs figures yesterday, the market expectation of where the Bank of England interest rate was going to settle again jumped up. So we had been talking about maybe around 5.5%. Now there is a real possibility markets feel that we could get as high as 6% in terms of the Bank of England. Uh, And clearly that is then having a knock-on to uh, house builders. So yesterday, if you looked at the FTSE 100 fallers, uh, you won't be surprised that a clutch of house builders had seen their share price absolutely tumble. I mean, They've really been under the cosh the last few months anyway, but investors are are just constantly having to redraw lines. We know that house builders are taking a look at plans they've got in the pipeline, figuring out if they're going to be able to make money, if they're going to be able to sell these houses, because as you say, there's just so much volatility around. And the next set of economic data that we had this week was GDP figures. Um, They were actually more positive after I feel like a lot of doom and gloom we talked about there. They were more positive, weren't they? They were more positive, but I'm afraid I'm going to put my glass half empty uh, on the <laughs> no, table right now. Positivity. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had growth 0.2% in April after a fall of 0.3% in March, which means over the three uh, months to April, um, GDP grew 0.1%. And normally, for a healthy economy, we want growth. We're talking about needing to have massive growth. But as we were saying, at a time when the Bank of England is sticking its foot on the gro- on the brakes, the fact that consumer spend has helped power GDP in this month will not be the kind of data that the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee will like to see. We're also seeing the impact of things like strikes, 
clearly a lot of workers are feeling the squeeze on their wages. They're finding that they're just not able to buy the same stuff they used to. You know, we've heard tales of lots of people being unable to fill their car up with petrol, being unable to, you know, eat three meals a day. People are in a really difficult situation. It is leading to, of course, a, a lot of industrial action at the moment. And a couple of areas where we saw things really impacted were health services. We had four days of junior doctor strikes. and There was also one day of school strikes when schools were closed, which a lot of businesses were pointing to saying that they had suffered from disruption there. And just to sort of round it all out, Another area where we saw really the economy slowing was, you guessed it, house builders and estate agents. So yes, although on the one hand, with my glass half full on the table, we are not looking like we're heading towards recession, which is a good thing. On the other hand, if you are talking about a situation where you want the economy to slow, where you want cash taken out of consumer pockets so it forces prices down, then uh, I'm afraid that uh, the Bank of England still has a huge job to do. But it's a different story in the US, isn't it, where they had lower than expected inflation figures, something that the Bank of England could only dream of over here at the moment. Um, And that in turn had a knock on effect on US markets and hopes of maybe slowing stopping of interest rate hikes by the Fed. Yeah, we saw yesterday um, both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq hit their highest closing levels in 14 months. And that is because, as you say, um, data had showed that consumer prices has risen more modestly than even analysts had expected. Get this, Laura, US CPI, the headline figure at the minute, 4%. Well, that's basically what the UK government was aiming for for the end of this year, which now looks increasingly tough for Rishi Sunak to me. It does look increasingly tough. Uh, 4%, of course, though, still double the uh, Federal Reserve target of 2%, though it looks rather more attainable than where we are at the moment here in the UK. Clearly, there are huge differences between the US and Europe. And one of the big things has to do with energy sources, a lot of domestic energy sources in the US, which has prevented a lot of the inflationary heat from sort of flooding across the Atlantic. You've also got to remember that while the Bank of England was the first major central bank to start cutting, uh, increasing rates, or cutting rates were an entirely different episode there, the first uh, central bank to start increasing rates, the Federal Reserve went much further, much faster. So it's had 10 rate hikes in a row, interest rates now more than 5%. Remember, we're only at 4.5% here at the moment. So the likelihood, the expectation, the overriding expectation uh, at the moment is that we will see the Federal Reserve pause its rate hiking cycle when it makes its decision later today. That has set the cat among the pigeons. It's really boosted confidence uh, in markets at the moment. But the big thing that everyone's going to be listening out for is what comes along with that decision. What do central bankers have to say about it? Is Colin Powell going to say, look, we've got this far, we're going to pause, but clearly 
there is the possibility that we may have to go further. And when you think about core inflation still looking pretty sticky at 5.3%, a lot of people think that we'll get a skip rather than a pause and that we will see further rate hikes next time. But at the moment, yeah, market's responding pretty nicely to uh, expectation. Let's go on to company-specific stuff now. So just today, we've had the announcement of a merger between Vodafone and Three, which would create the country's biggest mobile phone operator. Danny, I know this news hasn't been out that long, but what do we know so far? Well, it's been a long time coming. We know that much. I mean, speculation about this tie-up has been around since they announced that they were having talks last October. So we know that the combined group, which will just combine their respective UK operations, will then end up with Vodafone owing a majority stake, 51%. Um, The question, of course, is will it be approved by regulators? The group would end up with a combined 27 million mobile customers. So it would uh, eclipse BT, um, which owns EE. That would lose the number one position in the market. It would also see this combined group overtake O2 as well. Now, sort of in a in a bid to try and sweeten the deal with the Competition and Markets Authority. The two groups have said, look, we will invest £11 billion over 10 years. And that is to create what they're talking about as one of Europe's most advanced standalone 5G networks, which sounds all well and lovely. Um, But, you know, telco is an expensive business. That sort of upgrade is constantly required. It eats cash. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, we saw uh, just a a couple of weeks ago, BT talking about having to make huge job cuts and invest in AI to, to sort of cut costs there. And Vodafone really seriously is having to um, make serious savings. So this deal, they reckon, would result in annual savings for the companies of around £700 million by the fifth year. You won't be surprised that uh, shares in Vodafone were up almost 3% on the news, but they were at a 25-year low the day before. So really, this was an incredibly needed thing to um, Vodafone. Um, under the plans, uh, no cash going to be changing hands. It's going to be completed through debt adjustment. Uh, $1.7 billion will be transferred to this new company by three. Uh, we know that CK Hutchinson, which is the Hong Kong-based group, had been looking for a sale for, for quite a while. So this really is um, potentially a good way for them to exit things uh, here in the UK. But, you know... It depends on the competition and markets authority. A lot of hoops to jump through before this is a done deal. I saw in the initial announcement that uh, Vodafone said this was going to be a deal, among other things, that was great for competition. So it seems that they've got their eye on the competition's regulator already, (laughs) trying to win them over at an early stage. Um, But this week, we've also seen Mike Ashley back in the news again. His Fraser's group has bought a stake in AO, the appliances company, which feels like a bit of a segue to me for Ashley. What does he want with AO? Yeah, 18.9% stake. 
Um, and you're right. I mean, if you think about uh, Fraser's group and, and the sort of things that they have been targeting, um, predominantly sportswear, sports goods, athleisure brands, um, and also it's been sort of shifting into beauty handbags through flannels. They've also bought sofa.com. So I, I suppose thinking long term, some of these things then become quite bulky, particularly if you're thinking about sports equipment, if you're thinking about sofas. So, you know, logistics and that kind of stuff and the, the great big logistics uh, empire and that AO has uh, might come in handy. Um, we also know that Fraser's has always been uh, right there when a bargain is to be had. Uh, and AO's share price has not been looking very pretty over the last few months. So you can see that actually there is the potential here for some kind of strategic partnership. But 75 million quid, I mean, you're talking about nearly a fifth of the business that it is buying now. And there are other options if it is looking to get into logistics because uh, Tufnels, uh, which is a big logistics firm up here in the north, um, has gone into administration. So, you know, there, there is the potential there. But AO has been very good at things like insurance for, you know, your fridge, your freezer and that kind of stuff. So it's got an awful lot of knowledge which Fraser's might want to tap into. We know that Mike Ashley is always looking for that next string to the bow, the next opportunity. And maybe this makes sense in the grand scheme of things. And that stake in AO was largely bought from OD Asset Management, which has been the source of a lot of news attention in the past week after serious allegations published in the Financial Times and Tortoise Media of its founder, Crispin OD. The FCA, the regulator, is now investigating and Mr. OD has been removed from the partnership and day-to-day management of a number of funds amid a personnel reshuffle at the asset manager, according to Sky News. Mr. OD denies the allegations and we will keep track of the impact on funds and investors on this podcast. But on to other news in markets. Microsoft has suffered another setback in its bid to take over gaming giant Activision Blizzard in a deal worth over $56 billion. So what's happened there, Danny? Yeah, this time it's the United States regulator who is concerned about competition. Uh, You might be thinking this is sort of Groundhog Day because just a few weeks ago we were talking about the fact that the UK Competition and Markets Authority had said, nope, this isn't going to go ahead, this deal, we don't like it because of competition concerns. Um, We also then had Microsoft uh, in something of a war of words saying, well, the UK is closed for business. You know, why are they not letting this go ahead Uh, and really sort of singing the praises of the EU as a great place to do business? And the EU regulators have given the go ahead. But in the US, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, says the deal could substantially lessen competition. And a judge has now granted their request to temporarily block the takeover. So we're now waiting for a, a court hearing, which is scheduled to take place uh, from the 22nd of June. 
Now, this deal is absolutely massive because Activision Blizzard uh, is behind games like Candy Crush, uh, which uh, I have on my phone. I do enjoy playing a bit of Candy Crush. Uh, (laughs) Call of Duty. (laughs) Not so much, but huge. And it would be the sort of the biggest deal in the history of the video games industry. And it's, it's really split regulators. Now, the Federal Trade Commission has argued it would give Microsoft's Xbox console exclusive access to a lot of Activision's games, which effectively means that other console operators, Nintendo, Sony, wouldn't then have access to it in the same way. So if you wanted to play those games, yeah, you guessed it, you've got to buy a Microsoft Xbox. Microsoft said, look, our takeover of Activision would benefit not only gaming companies, but also players. And it's offered to sign an agreement with the FTC to make sure that this Call of Duty games uh, and the other games would be available to rivals for a decade. But it's a tricky point in time for the sector. You know, games, the metaverse, all those things were sort of at the cusp where it is becoming absolutely massive. Microsoft is a huge company, and there's real concern that maybe it just becomes way too big. It dominates too much, uh, and the consumer is the one that loses out. But of course, it's also appealing the decision by the UK regulator. I imagine there'll be a close attention paid to whatever happens in the US. Now we've got our interview for this week, and it's a great one for those of you who've ever wondered if your portfolio is properly diversified. So one fund manager thinks that a lot of people are making mistakes with their investments as they're hiding in the same place and not spreading their risks enough. So we dispatched Dan Coatesworth to talk to Barry Norris from the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund about this topic. Let's listen to what he had to say. So so Barry, Harry Markovitz was credited with inventing modern portfolio theory for the idea that you can reduce risk of volatility by investing in uncorrelated assets. As we saw last year, people's portfolios are perhaps more correlated than they thought, particularly with bonds and equities, where they both fell together. And I think a lot of people were caught out. I mean, I mean, what is there a sort of solution to this problem? Um, you know, I think when people think about uncorrelated correlated assets, they're thinking, okay, well, I need a bit of property, a bit of cash, a bit of gold, as, as well as equities, or are people do, are going about this the wrong way? So I think the solution is to have something in addition to government bonds, which will perform in an uncorrelated way to equity markets. Because of course, as we saw with government bonds um, last year, they were in fact highly correlated to to equities, but historically that's not been the case. So uncorrelated does doesn't guarantee you uh, 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 to be negatively correlated. So the important thing I think in terms of looking at portfolios is to diversify what you get your uncorrelated return from. Historically, of course, investors have used cash, which over the last 10 years has obviously negatively impacted on return. They've used government bonds, which are now offering you know a reasonable um, return with with falling inflation. But I think certainly in terms of equity exposure, there are loads of funds out there that do well when the market does well, but there are very few funds 
that have any sort of track record of doing well uh, when the going gets tough and equity markets are more difficult. So that is a space that we at Argonaut try to fill. I know quite a lot of investors would look to capital preservation funds when they think that markets are going tough. But what? But how? How might an absolute return fund like yours um, sort of operate? You know, and how? How are you able to sort of perhaps um, you know, be quite resilient um, if we can use that term during sort of weaker market conditions? Yes. Yeah, so look, I think if we look at the absolute return space. Most funds in the space are low volatility funds. And I'd make two points on that. First, you can replicate that as an investor yourself by using cash. So if you want to have a fund that has got half of the market volatility and half the return, just have 50% in cash and 50% in passive. Secondly, low volatility by itself doesn't diversify anybody because in that fund, which has got 50% in cash and 50% in the market, although it will have half of the volatility of the market, it will go up and down at exactly the same time as the market does. Therefore, there is no diversification benefit. What gives you the diversification benefit is an asset or a fund like ours, which delivers at different times. And this, I think, is crucially important when people think about diversification in that you could have 10 assets, all good funds, but if they're highly correlated to each other, you're not properly diversifying. What diversifies people is investing in uncorrelated assets. So a good example of this is in Q1 2020, the market fell by 25% uh, due to the, the COVID outbreak and the lockdowns. And we had our best ever quarter in that we were up 18%. So we delivered exactly at the time when nothing else in your portfolio delivered. And of course, you know, we will have um we will have uh, 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 good months and bad months, but our bad months will also come at different times to everything else in your portfolio where you've got things that offset it. So the important thing here in terms of uh, how investors should diversify is look for uncorrelated assets, but uncorrelated assets that are also going to enhance your returns. So, you know, we're, we, we, we've we had, um, on average, a beta to the market of 0.1. But since the launch, we've actually beaten the market. And there are very few assets that have beaten the market, uh, uh, with, with, with beaten a bull market with no beta. And in negatively in months that have delivered negative returns exclusively, the market is down 89%. And the fund during only negative months for the market is up 57%, which is only about a 30% of its overall return, but nevertheless shows or demonstrates, I think, a, a, a reasonably strong track record in delivering when perhaps other assets in your portfolio will not. I think with many investors, they think, okay, well, I'll get a diversified portfolio by investing in some different industry sectors, um, perhaps some different themes and different geographies. But is that still that's still perhaps not a foolproof way of succeeding? Do you think? Um, I, I guess if everyone's if they're investing in 
um, you know, tech and media, perhaps they're not realizing that, that you know that there's many similarities there. I mean, what 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 have you seen over your sort of career? Perhaps that the mistakes investors make at this point. Well, I think the common mistake is to think that you are diversifying by owning a number of different assets, but those when those assets actually always are highly correlated to each other and deliver at the same time you're actually kidding yourself that you're diversifying. It's fake diversification. And I think this is a problem because people that think they're diversifying by owning different names actually just end up in the same bull market rodeo when uh, you know, they're, 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 all of those stocks will often only perform uh, under certain macroeconomic circumstances you know, they may be all highly correlated to low interest rates or inflation coming down or to perceptions of, of growth in the tech world. And that sort of crowding often happens, of course, when you had a long bull market in something and the same things that have done done well, uh, people think that they can just diversify by, you know, maybe only 10 tech stocks instead of one. But that, of course, isn't diversification. That is, in fact, the complete opposite of diversification. I think we we certainly saw you know ten years plus of a, a period of low interest rates, which um, you know ended just over a, a year ago. Um, last year was pretty miserable for anyone who who was in sort of these these sort of growth or tech names. But this year they, they've all gone back into fashion again. Do you think everyone's sort of feeling yep. quite you know you know we, we look back at our past winners and think okay, um, you know, just they had a year blip, but let's hide them again now because you know they've done well in the past. But do you, do you think we really are in a different environment now? than you know what we've seen in the last decade or so i would say that we're in a stop start macro environment like we were in in the 70s where um there is massive uncertainty over inflation there is massive central bank intervention and as a result that uncertainty over the level of money in the economy relative to the, the nominal economic growth and the inability of central banks to manage that with uh, an exactness that ensures uh, regular 2% inflation rather than um, very high inflation or deflation means that we're in, we'll be in a boom and bust cycle over the next 10 years. Uh, a lot of that has, has to do with the, it's the low productivity in the real economy and the fact that you know, if we if if we don't get productivity growth or real economic growth, then printing money is a way of softening the pain in a democracy uh, and pretending that you've got growth by printing money. But in fact, that creates a number of different problems further down the line. So I think you know what we're what we're obviously seeing this year is i think a, a a rebound of last year's winners um and actually some of the things that did well last year in a high inflationary environment are doing less well this year and that's because we're going from a in my view a, a high inflation period to one where the money supply is shrinking interest rates are high and there's a high probability in my view of a liquidity crunch or a credit crunch in the second half of the year which will put us in a very different place in terms of risk reward um, than the, 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 the many of the times over the last 10 years. But I think that means that 
you know, managers have to not be dogmatic about the sorts of companies they invest in, but just attuned to the fact that we're probably going to be in this stop-start um, uh, economic growth cycles where the seasons change quite quickly in terms of investing and what the market rewards. Because one one thing that's perhaps sort of separates you from you know, your traditional sort of equity uh, fund is that you, you, your average fund manager will will look for companies and to, you know, invest in them in the hope that the share price will rise. You do that, but you also um, spot companies where you think the share price will fall, which is something called shorting. Um, you know, for the average retail investor, this is, is extremely high risk activity. But obviously, as a professional money manager, how how do you go about sort of managing the risks with you know betting that a, a company could fall because i guess if you get it wrong um you know it can be very costly to you can't it sure so look um uh, firstly obviously you've got to identify stocks that have got something wrong with them and we generally categorize these as as frauds fads and fades so fraud they're cooking the books uh, the profit doesn't exist. They're, they're abusing uh, equity markets by by raising money from the public um, for a business that that isn't what they purport the business to be. Um, second, fads. So these are often, you know, things that will come to market for IPO. They're they're kind of the product's fashionable, but you know, there's no sustainable competitive advantage. So, you know, we might use um beyond meat as a good example of that where you know they 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 claimed that they were completely reinventing the the meat industry but in fact all that they were doing was was repackaging a bean burger uh which wasn't particularly difficult for other companies to um to 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 do better and make more money out of and i think the third one is fade so this is like a business that is in uh, perpetual decline. So, you know, Cineworld would have been a good example of this where, you know, there were um, obviously long-term challenges to the business model in terms of of, of streaming, replacing the cinema experience, of, of losing the, the exclusivity period in the cinema. But then in Cineworld, they managed to kind of double up on this sunset industry by borrowing a lot of money to buy all these sunset assets all around the world. Then COVID came. And even though they took loads of government furlough money, the management still paid themselves millions. Um, but the business was never going to be the same again and never had a future. Um, and so those are sort of the free characteristics we look for. And then, of course, we've got to then blend them within a portfolio to um, not only generate a return, but a return that is acceptable in terms of volatility and, and risk control. So what we tend, what tends to happen, or put it this way, what I think a lot of people with that the, 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 the do shorts badly don't recognize is the need for a high degree of diversification. So our position sizes in our short book are a lot smaller than what they are in our long book. Uh, and that's because obviously uh, when you get it wrong, the position go position rises in size rather than falls in size as it, if you were if you were long the stock. So 
you know, we currently have about 70 shorts, but we only have about 40 longs and our short positions are much smaller than our, than our, than our long positions. And that means that we can generally ride out the volatility of a, of a, of a stock. And, you know, certainly our experience in the, in the, you know, if the shorts that go to zero can often double at any one time before they go to zero. So, you know, position size is extremely important, not only your starting point, but usually, and this I think is in contrast to the general perception of the short seller, we don't sort of add to winning positions just before they go bust because the chances of them doubling just before they go bust are generally also um, quite high. And, you know, you can only make 100% in a short. So, you know, we're pretty patient short sellers. We size our position accordingly. And we try to diversify as well through, you know, not have, not only having these three different themes, but, you know, having having different things going on in the portfolio at any one time so that, you know, if we lose on one, we, we win on the other and it offsets um, things in the overall portfolio. What, I guess an obvious question would be to ask you, did you manage to sort of predict the, the troubles with US banks? And, and did you have any short positions in this area? Yeah, so I think look, we were we were short um, all, we, all four banks that have failed um, this year. So um, Silicon Valley, Signature, uh, First Republic and Credit Suisse. Um, and there were reasonably big positions as well for us. Um, they were amongst the, the biggest positions that we had in the fund. So we probably made about 800 basis points or 8% from all of those banks going going to zero, which is, um, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty good return. And I think what led us to Silicon Valley was just last year, we were thinking who's funding all these businesses that, that, that kind of like a unprofitable growth stocks that will, in our view, never make a profit. And, you know, how are they being funded? Who do they bank with? And we started looking at Silicon Valley as a result of that. And then found that there was this other problem, it was a different problem than the one we originally thought it had, which was it had taken in loads of deposits during COVID and had basically, in, they were paying nothing on those deposits, but they had invested them in treasuries at the very top of the treasury market. So they'd locked in really low returns, which were making money at the time when they were paying nothing on their deposits. But as interest rates went up, um, they would not they would they would essentially have these bonds which were now loss making because they'd locked in a very low rate of interest relative to the current rate of interest but they couldn't now afford to pay any interest to their depositors to fund those bonds and as a result the company was insolvent um and then i think signature bank was actually we were short that again because of its crypto related uh uh network that we thought um they had so we put it politely some know your client issues um and that probably they were going to be shut down by the sec as a result of that and then again when we looked at it more closely they had exactly the same problem with the asset duration mismatch as silicon valley had so so often you you kind of start looking at companies from from one point of view and then you know the 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 
the the the when you open the closet door, there's more than one skeleton hanging in it. Well, Barry Norris from Argonaut Absolute Return Fund, thank you ever so much for coming on to our podcast. Pleasure, Daniel. So Barry Norris there from the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund talking to Dan Coatsworth. Finally, Laura, you've got a great trick for parents who are looking to stash away money for their kids in tax-free accounts because normally we know that you are limited to £9,000 per year per child in a junior ISA or a child trust fund, except, right, Yes, except I have found a quirk. Well, I should be honest, the wonderful technical team at the AJ Bell have found a quirk that means that you could put £36,000 away for your child in these tax-free accounts in one year. I'm going to caveat this at the top with this is obviously only an option for very wealthy parents or those who've had a windfall of money, that £9,000 a year limit per child for a junior ISA or child trust fund is more than sufficient for the average family. But if you are looking to do a bit of inheritance planning, for example, or you do have a lump sum of money that you want to pass on to your children, then this could be a good way. The first um, thing is they need to have a child trust fund at the moment. And in, within a child trust fund, you can pay £9,000 in each year. But unlike conventional ISA accounts, child trust fund years run on the child's birthday. So you could put £9,000 in on the eve of a child's birthday and then another £9,000 once they've had their birthday. Um, and that gives you £18,000 in the space of a few days where you can pay in. If you then transfer that child trust fund into a junior ISA, those previous contributions, even if they've been made in um, the same tax year, are disregarded for junior ISA purposes. So because you've now transferred all that money into a junior ISA, you get a fresh £9,000 limit for the junior ISA. And of course, that resets at the end of the tax year. So you can make one contribution right at the start of April and then another £9,000 contribution in the new tax year on the 6th or 7th of April. And if you add all of those together in a matter of a few months, depending on when your child's birthday is, you could put £36,000 into those accounts, which would grow free of tax, um, and free of kind of capital gains tax and income tax like ISAs do. It's a strange quirk in the rules that is, you know, the combined different rules of child trust funds and junior ISAs, um, but it can be a pretty lucrative loophole for those who have a lot of money they want to put away for their kids. Very helpful if you have that money, but you're absolutely right, the £9,000 a year amount um, often seems like... Uh, an incredibly overly generous amount and unfortunately my <laughs> yes. kids will not be You're having a birthday that. present of that kind <laughs> that you is never everything. know you might get a windfall ah yes here's hoping <laughs> i shall go and buy a lottery ticket that is everything for this week next week dan coatsworth and tom siebel will be on the show with all the latest markets news as well as an interview all about the healthcare sector catch you then bye bye before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply 
and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.